Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I don't know if I dare do this, but shall we have a show of hands? Who here is thrilled about the idea of talking Trinity? So, who here is a little bit intimidated by it? Yeah, but I think when we talk about Trinity, there are a number of obstacles that are often in the way of us engaging with what the Trinity is and really getting it. And what I want to do first, just before we take our next break, is discuss what some of those obstacles are and get us on a nice kind of good playing field to then dig into what the Bible says. So, there should be a page in your other set of notes on the Trinity that I've put as potential obstacles. And the first potential obstacle that I've got is some false statements. So these are things that people will say about the Trinity that might mislead us or put us off. And the first one is people will say, Trinity isn't in the Bible. And what they've done is they found some Bible software or a concordance or something like that where you can search for every instance of a word in the Bible and they've typed in Trinity and how many hits do they get? Zero, because the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, right? So, if someone said to you, well, why bother looking at that? It's not in the Bible. What would you say to them? Yeah? Even though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible explicitly, the doctrine and the idea of the Trinity is clearly illustrated throughout the Bible. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the heart of the thing. Because I would say, well, the word Bible isn't in the word Bible either. (laughs) There are lots of words that are not physically written in the text of Scripture, but they're words that we use as a way of referring to things that are in the Bible. So the question isn't, is the word in there? The question is, is the idea in there? Is what we're talking about found in the Bible? I hope by the end of this time you see unambiguously the answer is yes, that's what we're going for. Second false statement that I often hear is the Trinity is one of those secret things that belong to the Lord. And people are alluding when they say this to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29 which says the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So if someone says, okay, there are secret things that belong to God, there are revealed things that belong to us, Trinity is one of the secret things, let's not bother. What would you say if someone said that to you? Right, yeah. We're we're talking about what the Bible says, so it's been revealed. So we're talking about something on the revealed side. Yeah. So, um, my course leader, I'm doing um, some theology study, the guy who leads my course is Mike Reeves. He has written, I think, the best book on the Trinity. It's called The Good God. It's short, it's easy to understand. If you buy it and read it, you'll realise where I've ripped off all my material from. Um, But it is very good. Uh, And this is what Mike says. God is a mystery 
But not in the alien abductions, things that go bump in the night sense. Certainly not in the who can know, why bother sense. God is a mystery in that who he is and what he likes are secrets. Things that we would never have worked out by ourselves, but this triune God has revealed himself to us. Thus, the Trinity is not some piece of inexplicable apparent nonsense like a square circle or an interesting theologian. Rather, because the triune God has revealed himself, we can understand the Trinity. So, second thing that I think really presents an obstacle to people is some of the illustrations that sometimes get used about the Trinity. So I thought it'd be fun to just see what are some of the illustrations you've heard. And if you share one, this doesn't mean that you think it's accurate or you think it's good or anything like that. But what are some of the things that you've heard the Trinity compared to? Water. How does water work with the Trinity? Steam. Okay, so there's water, ice, and steam. They're all kind of the same thing, but they're different. Okay, yeah, I've heard that one. I'm going to write some of these. All right, we've got water. <laughs> yep, that's one. Any others anyone's heard? And also, a person like, you know, you're a father, a son, and you're the other one person you've got different roles yep 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 okay any others clover clover yes three leaves of a clover but one clover yeah egg yes yeah, so people will say an egg is a white, a yolk, and a shell, but it's one egg. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any others? Heat. Heat. Okay. So electric fire, heat, power, light, yeah? Yes. Okay, yeah, I'm sure there are others that people sometimes use. Uh, and what people are trying to do is give us a mental picture of what it means to, for something to be three and one at the same time. So they try and think of some scenario where that would be true. The problem with using illustrations like these is you've got to be careful whether they're illustrating what's true or what's false. And there are many ways that you could conceive of being three and one that are just not how the Bible says it is with God. So uh, you sometimes end up, when you put these kind of analogies forward, describing something that isn't what the Bible says the Trinity is, but actually is false teaching that throughout the history of the church, various groups of church leaders have come together and looked at it and said, actually, there are some serious issues with this. This isn't what the Bible says, and it's not what we believe. I thought I would, just to lighten it up, show you a little video uh, about this at this point. Um, so hopefully, uh, I didn't have a better wire to a bigger speaker, so hopefully we can hear it, and this will work. Um. 
This doesn't seem good, does it? Oh. I'll play it again in a moment. Let's see if we can get the sound working. I might try just through the laptop speaker, see if I can get it this way. One more try. There we go. simple people without your fancy education and books and learning and we're hearing about all of this for the first time so try to keep it simple okay patrick yeah real simple patrick sure there are uh, three persons of the trinity the father the son and holy spirit yet there is only one god don't get what you're saying here patrick not picking up what you're laying down here patrick could you use an analogy patrick sure uh the trinity is like uh water and how you can find water in three different forms liquid and ice and vapor that's modalism patrick <laughs> what modalism an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as noetus and sibelius which espouses that god is not three distinct persons but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms this heresy was clearly condemned in canon one of the first council of constantinople in 381 ad and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the church catholic Modalism again. 
All right, then it's like the three layers of an app. Arsonism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> now let's open up some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> <laughs> I think as well as being heresies, a lot of the problem I have with many of the analogies that we use, like the ones on the video, most, not all on the list actually, but most on the list, is how impersonal they are. I, I think that is the heart of the issue when we're trying to say God is like an egg. I just cringe because in an egg, there is no love, there's no relationship, it's just things that exist. So we're trying to get our head into a metaphysical reality and missing the fact that at the heart of the Trinity is relationship and love. And so none of those kind of analogies can really work. Running through some of the other um, potential obstacles we might have, strange language is one of them. So the way people most commonly explain or express the idea of the Trinity is they say, one God, three persons. When do you ever hear the word persons said? I can think of three contexts. Uh, this is from Andrew Wilson, but one is when we're talking about the Trinity, one is when someone's in a court of law, uh, and one is when you're in a lift and it tells you how many persons may safely ride the lift. And that's it. It makes it confusing, right? We don't use the word, so it just makes it seem distant. We talk about things and differentiate things like God in substance, in being, in persons, and there are wise reasons for doing it. These words are used on purpose, but it's an obstacle when it gets dressed up in technical language that we're not familiar with. Another potential thing is the starting point that we come from. Uh, and what I mean by this is, when you think about God, you don't have a blank slate. You usually have some baggage that comes from the culture that you're in. When medieval people first heard about God, they'd, um, from a feudal society, they'd think of God as like a feudal lord. They'd be taking the images of the world they lived in and importing it onto God. Or when the Vikings heard about God, he was a, a warrior king leading his people into battle because that was their worldview. I want to show you a quote and just see what you make of it. I'm not going to uh, give much of my thoughts yet. So this is a quote about God. God is a living being, eternal, most good, so that life and duration, continuous and eternal, belong to God. For this is God. It is clear then from what has been said that there is a substance which is eternal and unmovable and separate from sensible things. Now by sensible, uh, it's like in the able to sense rather than like not silly um, version of that. What do you make of that quote? Any thoughts? A bit vague. It's a bit vague, yeah, I'll give you that. 
Yeah, and there's no relationship in there, yeah? Still tries to bring it into that metaphysical space of saying yes. it's a substance. Very metaphysical. Yes. Grasp. That word substance is so key in this quote. Does anyone have any idea who this quote might be from? Aquinas. Aquinas, it's not Aquinas. Someone who doesn't understand the truth. <laughs> it's Aristotle. This is Greek philosophical thought about God that predates Christ and this is how Aristotle thought of God there's, there's some kind of substance this stuff that makes up God and then you can layer some characteristics on uh, onto this stuff it's, it's living it's eternal it's good uh, and by defining what this stuff is then you've got a sense of God and then we can have a conversation about God where we've got a common frame of reference this idea, this Greek philosophical idea of God has so pervaded the way the West thinks that if we talk to someone about God, this probably, they wouldn't know that Aristotle said it, but this probably would be the underlying assumption behind the conversation. We're talking about some kind of substance that we are characterising and talking about what the characteristics are. This makes the Trinity very, very difficult for us. And going on to the final box that I had on the handout, the wrong question. Because when we start where Aristotle starts, we think there's this substance, and this substance is God, and now I've somehow got to get my head around how this one substance can be at the same time three persons. How can I take this and shoehorn three into the idea of this one God? I would suggest that's not where the Bible goes with its question. It doesn't start with, there's a one, let's try and wrestle with how we can get one to be three. Where the Bible starts is that we see that the Father is God. We see that the Son is God. And we see that the Holy Spirit is God. And we see that the three are in relationship with each other. And then the Bible wrestles with the question, what does oneness look like then, given that those things are true? It doesn't start with a predefined idea of oneness. It starts with the three. And I think if we start with that question, it will help us. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. The Bible does say God is one. And you're right. So, you can have a look at that now. Here's the plan. I want us to have a break. I need to put some coffee on. So, I'm going to give you a bit of group work to do while I brew up some coffee. And then we'll chat about it after the break. So, you should find a slide in there um, about Deuteronomy chapter 6 and God's oneness. Here's what I would like you to do. Read through Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 to 15 and this has got I think the classic biblical statement about the oneness of God uh, and that is in verse um, verse 4 hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one what I'd like you to do read through the passage note down what do you think are some of the key themes of this passage the whole thing 1 to 15 and then how does verse 4 fit with what's going on here just have a think about those things and then in 5 to 10 minutes I'll give you a shout when the coffee's ready and we'll take our next break right so before the break I just sent you a passage to have a look at and think about 
What were some of the things that were going on in Deuteronomy 6 that we saw? God gives rules and guides to his people mm-hmm. how to live. Oh, yep, yeah. so there's rules and guidance on how to live. Great. Obedience. Obedience, yeah. Yeah. Also, the fruit of staying close to God. The fruit of staying close to God, yeah. Yeah. So you're speaking to your children and your children's children, yeah. Yeah. There are warnings, yeah. If we were to summarise what's behind all of these things that we've observed, what would we say it's kind of... Where's it coming from? What place is it? It's good to obey God. It's good to obey God, obedience, and the obedience flows from covenant. So these are people who God has rescued, God has redeemed, God has brought into covenant with himself. Uh, And we hear some of that, don't we, in... um, in verse 12, um, that it's the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery. There's a remembering what God's done for them and letting that shape how they live as faithful covenant partners to God. So God has been faithful to you. You be faithful to God. That's the summary, I would say, of what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, within that, you've got this verse that people often refer to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So as part of giving this call to covenant loyalty, there's a statement about the oneness of God. Does that make sense why that would be there in a passage like this? It made me think of unity and you know right, okay. verse in where God commands, where brethren Yes. No, no, this is good. But yeah. Relationship and right. Intimacy, but also God's generosity. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Love relationship and intimacy. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's all interwoven. Yes. On your door, you speak about it all the time. Yes. It's not a go to church on Sunday sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. That's That's good. Yeah. Let me give you a little thought experiment, okay? Imagine that this wasn't God giving a call to his people. Imagine this is a different context where someone is calling a group of people to action. So this could be in a church context. It could be a church leader giving a vision statement to the church. It could be a a boss at work uh, giving some direction for the company. It could be a parent issuing some instructions to children. Pick whatever context you want. Imagine they lay out what they want to see happen the direction they want things to go in and then say I'm one person so do all this stuff to me that doesn't make any sense right if however now just kind of thing we're not talking about one person imagine we're talking about a leadership team of a church a director's board of a company uh, two parents mum and dad together if they say right hear this we're one in this. We're, we're together. We, we have unity. We're, we have a single purpose here. 
So come do this, come join us. It makes so much more sense when it's grounded in relationship. If we're thinking one as a mathematical word, we get confused. If we think one as a relational word, I think it opens up a picture of what the Trinity is. And that word one is the same word in Hebrew and in English that we see in Genesis 2 verse 24, which uh, you have on the notes. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does that mean that they are one? Well, it's not a mathematical thing. It's not a metaphysical thing. It's a unity thing. It's a relational thing. The oneness is about the closeness. It's about the drawing together. It's about the sharing. It's about the mutuality. Similar in the New Testament, this is what Jesus says as he's praying for the church. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So when Jesus pictures what kind of oneness he wants the church to have, he thinks of the same oneness that exists in God between the Father and the Son. Now imagine that prayer was answered. Imagine the church, well it's not always been the case, but imagine the church had unity that was off the scale. Imagine everything Jesus was asking for, the unity of purpose, the, the shared love, the shared life together of the church was exactly as it should be. If that's the answer to the prayer of oneness, even like the Father and Son are one, does that help us understand what we mean when we say the Father and Son are one, that God is one. Not mathematical, relational. That's the heart of what we're talking about. So I would suggest if we want to understand the Trinity, we don't start with Aristotle's substance, trying to divide this substance into three bits where we get all the, the heresies, Patrick. What we do instead is look at what it means for the Father, Son and Holy Spirit to be one. How do they relate to each other? How do they exist in relationship? And that's where John's Gospel comes in, because John so helpfully shows us this deep glimpse into how the Son relates to his father and then he'll loop back around and show us how the spirit relates to them as well so here's the next activity which you should see on this slide here that's entitled father and son and i've got eight passages from john's gospel just on your tables read each of those verses and note down what does that verse teach about the relationship between the Father and the Son. I'll give you between 10 and 15 minutes to, to have a look at those. Okay, there might not have been time to go through all of the verses, but hopefully it was enough time for you to get the idea and get a feel for what's going on. What were some of the things that reading some of those verses jumped out and struck you from them? Unity. Unity, yeah. Yeah. In what way? Like what, what kind of things did you see that made you think unity? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, just um, 
Yeah, they're, they're working together all the time. Mm. They're, they're, yeah. They've almost like got them sometimes their own. Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> they're probably in parallel. <laughs> <laughs> Teamwork. <laughs> You're working together. They <laughs> are. <laughs> no, but um, you know, sometimes in some of the verses they're saying, you know, they've got maybe different roles. Or mm. different what they're doing but they just seem to know exactly they're so in tune yeah absolutely yeah good yeah what else in John John 5 16 talks about there's a unity of purpose but there's an equal honour yes absolutely yeah that's really important isn't it yeah 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 what else on the submission Sorry, sub- submission. Mission. Mission. And heart. Yes. Same mission, same heart. They're about the same thing. So the son didn't come into the world with his own agenda, different from the father's agenda. It's, it's the same thing. They're, they're together on the same mission. Yeah. It's a perfection in the unity, isn't it? It's, it's a perfection in the unity. It's a perfection, not a unity yeah. It's open to interpretation. Right. It's absolute. Yes. Whole unity. Yeah, fully united. Fully. Yes. Yeah. They can't be separated, absolutely. Yeah. Sharing glory. Uh, sharing glory. The same glory. The same glory, yes. And the interesting thing about the glory is that they're directing the glory to one another, aren't they? The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. We don't hear the Father glorifying the Father, the Son glorifying the Son. It's, it's outward, it's giving, it's yeah. highlighting the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So there's a trust, even though the roles are different. The father is the one who's initiating and sending, and the son's the one who's coming and accomplishing what the father has said. Yeah. You know what it makes me think of? And don't kind of push this too far, otherwise I'll be on a bad analogies video. Um, but the kind of language used makes me think, you know those like old shops that you see where it's like the, the surname and son? Uh, and what you've got is a father who, who knows the family business, who knows the trade, who's known it for a long time. And you've got the son there working at the side of the father, being shown by the father, this is what we're about, this is what we do. Let me show you my ways walk in the ways that I walk do the things that I do being brought through in the family business now that's not to say the son didn't have knowledge before that's not what I'm getting at but just this idea of the son at the side of the father hearing and doing as the father said in the same family business that's how I picture the language here it's the the vibes that I get from it it's relational, it's loving, it's intimate, there's an enjoyment between the father and the son. Mm. Yes, yes. But his heart's choice from all eternities to lean into the father, not to turn away. But yes, the choice was there and should he have chosen that, uh, it would have been a very different thing, wouldn't it? Does it strike you as a bit different to God's a bit like a shamrock? 
and how there's these three clumps to it. We're not getting that. We're getting relationship and love defining what it means to be the father and son. It's different, isn't it? They have the same character as well, don't they? Yes. I mean, um, yeah. Jesus and seeing Jesus is yeah. the same as seeing Yes. Father. Yeah, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, he says. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I've put on the notes as well, before we go on to the Spirit, I've just put a little box called Plurality in God in the Old Testament. Because I think sometimes you get this impression that throughout the Old Testament, there was just God, and it's only in the New Testament you hear of Trinity. I don't think that's true. I think particularly when you read the New Testament and how the writers of the New Testament refer back to the Old Testament, they see Trinitarian uh, themes coming through the Old Testament as well. Uh, some of the things I picked out, in Genesis 1, when God is making mankind in his image, I don't know if you noticed verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, some people say, okay, is that, is that that he's talking to angels or spiritual beings? Well, no, because we're not made in the image of angels and spiritual beings. Our likeness, and then what's described as what the image is, well, it's a relational thing, male and female. The fact we have the relationality is part of what us making in our image is. There's a hand, go. What did the Jews make of that? Ah, I mean, that would be a lot to summarise into one thing. There's just so many. There'd be different views. Nowadays, most Jews would be quite dismissive of it because they understand that Christian teaching on the Trinity uh, flows into it. But you would have rabbis pre-Jesus who were reflecting on the plurality theme. And so what John's doing when he's saying the word was with God and the word was God wasn't a new and revolutionary idea, but it was picking up on things that rabbis were already reflecting on with some of the other points on there. So, for example, this character of the angel of the Lord who appears at various times in the Old Testament and he's treated both as God and distinct from God so people can talk to him as Yahweh as the Lord and yet he will then be talking about or to Yahweh the Lord he's both with God and is God you see the same in Proverbs where the wisdom of God is being taught in a really personified way again people will reflect on okay is this something that we should be noticing that yes there's God but also the way God God images himself the way God reveals himself. Are we seeing a plurality there? And then you've got some verses, um, like Psalm 110 is one that Jesus brings into the debates that he has with, with some of the Pharisees. He says, hey, what do you make of this verse then? Um, and it, Let me just find and read the verse. Psalm 110 verse 1. So this is David saying, the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's talking to who there? The Lord is talking to David's Lord. Who is David's Lord? Now, this is a massive rabbit hole, so if you don't uh, follow this, that's fine. There's a way of reading Psalms like this. Psalm 2 would be another one, and bits of Isaiah, that a lot of the early church fathers, and I believe the New Testament authors did as well, certainly in Hebrews, that's called prosopological exegesis. And what they're basically saying is the psalmists and the prophets would sometimes be given like a prophetic 
picture of conversations between the father and the son and then what they wrote would be recording and repeating those conversations as, as part of their prophecy or part of their psalm. Really interesting to read Psalm 2 in that light. Certainly looking at the way Hebrews will quote the Old Testament but it won't just say the, the scripture says, it won't even just say God says, it will say Christ says and then launch into Old Testament quotations. It's seeing the words of the Old Testament as words being reported from the mouth of Christ. So anyway, that's my little rabbit hole uh, excursus. Um, Tom, you had a question. Yeah, if, uh, just trying to point out for me, like, when you about the spirit. Yes. Genesis verse 2. Yes. Where the world is born, actually the spirit of God. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. So we saw in John that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we're seeing father and son and then back into Genesis you see the spirit there and a Trinitarian act of creation. Also Moses. Moses fascinates me uh, in, Genesis, in Exodus 33 because I, I wonder, you say how did the Jews read the Genesis one? I wonder what they made of these verses. So Exodus 33 verses 18 to 20 Moses said, please show me your glory. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on who I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And then you, even in the very same chapter, if you just flick back to verse 11, thus... The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Isn't that interesting? That just within a few verses, because you can't see the face of God and live. Moses spoke to God face to face. You see, there's some kind of, even in Moses' understanding of God, some kind of plurality. There's, there's God who I can't see, and there's God who I can see. And, and you've got this thing. And then if you go two chapters back to chapter 31, verse 3, uh, he talks about how Bezalel, the craftsman, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. So Moses might not have used language like Father, Son, and Spirit, but there's God who I can't see, God who makes him known and then God who indwells and empowers he would know the persons and you see it coming through in the Old Testament as well as in the New little excursus there let's go into John's Gospel again where does the Holy Spirit fit in because we've talked about the Father and the Son there are a few verses this time just four passages to have a look at so this one won't take as long but um, same kind of idea take five minutes maybe we'll see how it goes Read through these verses, and how does the Holy Spirit fit with what we've been talking about? That's your question. <laughs> okay, again, hopefully that's enough to give you at least some kind of feel for these verses. What are some of the things that these passages about the Holy Spirit made you think? He indwells to impart. Indwells to impart. Very good. Yes. Yes. What else? I've got a question, really. Yeah? The Holy Spirit is the advocate. Came, Jesus promised. Yes. But there was plenty of evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work before Jesus. Absolutely. 
Yes. So, is there a difference? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so there is a... Well, first thing I will say is next time we're here, we're doing a whole session on the Holy Spirit. So we're going to go deeper. But the, the shape of the answer is not that the Holy Spirit was inactive and unpresent pre-Pentecost. What is different is the way, through Old Testament times, the Spirit had been given just to leaders, prophets and others in terms of empowering. Now, there was still a um, Spirit causing people to be born again and repent before, because you can't do that without the Spirit. But in terms of empowering people for particular tasks, at Pentecost, that blessing was poured out on the entirety of God's people, male and female, old and young, servants, wealthy, whatever it may be. That was different to pre-Pentecost. So uh, that, I think, is the broad answer. And yeah, next month, Rebecca will hopefully dig into that a bit more. Yeah. Well, what else did we pick up from these verses in John? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, if the Father's glorifying the Son, and the Son's glorifying the Father, and the Spirit's glorifying the Son, and the Spirit's glorifying the Father, none of them are acting on their own accord. It's not their own purpose. It's not their own glory. Which is why that analogy of the dance actually makes a bunch more sense than some of the other ones on there. Now you can't push any analogy too far but you can see what it's getting at at least in the interactions and interrelations, yeah. So there's the glorifying, yeah. It's the advocate comes up several Yes. But different ways yes. to advocate for truth. Yes. To advocate the teachers. Yes. In the absence of Jesus. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, depending what translation you have, you might get the word advocate. Some might have the word helper as well, uh, which just shines a different light on the same idea. Um, yeah, definitely. As well as his actions. Sorry, he's just a total communicator. Yes, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes. What were you going to say? I've got that as well. Like, even though he, the Holy Spirit is not adding to the thing, he yeah. can distort any of that oneness. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. There's a bit in um, John 14, 26 with that in reminding. Mm. And I just, I just got that thought in my head because I, I saw a show on Sunday night where it was the first night, so therefore people weren't remembering their mind, so they needed the prompt. Right. Yeah. And I just thought, Yes, absolutely. And what is it that he's prompting with? <coughs> it's the words that Jesus spoke, isn't it? He's prompted the truth that Jesus has revealed. And what was the truth that Jesus revealed? He was making known the Father. So you're bringing it into this Trinitarian shape again. Yeah. Until Jesus goes, you can't get the Holy Spirit. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we see there is that the Spirit is sent by Jesus. So Jesus ascends and then pours out the Spirit, sends the Spirit. So that doesn't quite answer what you're asking, I think, which was why the time delay. I don't know the answer to that. But I think what is interesting is that we're seeing verses that say it's the Father that sends, but also it's the ascendant, crowned, enthroned Christ who sends the Spirit to his people as well. So we see it again as a joint act of the Father and the Son, 
to send the spirit. And it also talks about being with us and yeah. in us. Yes, yes. So that idea really then, you start to get somewhere quite revolutionary thinking about Trinity, when then you see the spirit is with us and in us, and what is the spirit doing in us? Well, it's bringing the presence of Christ into us. It's bringing relationship and love. The Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally been loving, eternally been glorifying one another. All of a sudden, the spirit in us, and we're caught up into it, we start to be brought into the same kind of relationship with God. You know, the, this language in... John 17. Now let me just read a bit, verse 20 onwards. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that we may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before you, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Anyone losing track of who's in who and who's with who? I think that's the point. I think we've seen this glorious dance, this beautiful relationship, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And what we're meant to be seeing is that now in Christ, we're drawn up into that. We get to play too. And the way we relate to one another, what's the model for it? Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Loving each other, glorifying each other, not themselves. So when we think about the Trinity, the Bible to me doesn't seem very interested in metaphysics. It doesn't seem very interested in trying to work out how can God be three and one at the same time. It seems really interested in relationships, really interested in what it means to put the other first, to give of yourself, to glorify, to love. So when we think about illustrations, I think the Bible does have some illustrations of the Trinity that are better than those. How about family as an illustration of the Trinity? I mean, the very words father and son gives a clue right and then in Genesis when the image of God made in our image is male and female there's something about relationship that illustrates it what about church as an illustration of the Trinity maybe not church as we experience it week by week but church as we dream of it church as it should be church at its best that's what the Bible is using to compare Trinity to but the, the unity and the oneness of it all gets turbocharged Jonathan Edwards was a theologian a couple of hundred years ago, and he spoke of the Trinity using this language, the society or family of the three. Have you ever heard the Trinity described as the family of the three before? That's getting closer to the heart of what the Bible is saying. He says the happiness of the deity, as all other true happiness, consists in love and society. Wow. Very different to... God is a substance, right? (laughs) Because it puts right at the core of who God is, love. God is love. And for all eternity, he's been giving of himself. Father giving of himself to the Son. Spirit shining a light on on the Son and on the Father. Son making known his Father, loving him, glorifying him, sharing a glory for all eternity past. The persons and the relationships are a core to understanding who God is and what we mean when we talk about Trinity. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone who says something basically like, yeah, all you people, you have your religions, you basically all worship the same God. Really? Is it, uh, I mean, what we've just talked about for the last hour or so, is that the same God that you worship? Is that the same God that you're referring to? Or have you just dumbed it down to God is a substance and so we must all be talking about the same stuff? Again, Mike Reeves uh, put the quote on there. This God simply will not fit into the mould of any other. For the Trinity is not some inessential add-on to God, some optional software that can be plugged into him. At bottom, this God is different. For at bottom, he's not creator, ruler, or even God in some abstract sense. He is the Father, loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. A God who is in himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love. Having such a God happily changes everything. It's amazing, isn't it? Isn't it a breath of fresh air when you realise that this is who God is? This is what he's about. I think it changes how we read the whole Bible. I've put a thing in your notes on the story of scripture and just to think as we track this through in a trinitarian lens in that first box eternity past what was god doing before he created the world now just imagine for a second that god was not trinity god was just one no father son spirit in him just this aristotle substance there What's God doing before the creation of the world? You can say out loud if anything jumps to mind. Not a lot. Maybe thinking about himself, because that's all there is. Is he loving? No, there'd be nothing or no one to love. It'd be boring, yeah. Um, he would need to create in order to be loving. So love couldn't be essential to who he is. He'd just be there and he'd be the center of all things but in a very kind of to me way a very i want to draw everything i'm I'm the be all and end all way that would be the nature of god what was god doing before the creation of the world once we understand father son and holy spirit well we've read some verses in john haven't we jesus says john 17 verse 5 now father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was God doing before he created? Loving his son. What was the son doing? Enjoying glory with the father. He's been outward focused, giving of himself since eternity past, since before the world was made. And that means then when God made the world, it wasn't out of lack. It wasn't like, I'd quite like to try being loving. I'd quite like to try relationship. I'd best make the world so I could do that. He didn't need to make the world. It was out of the overflow of the love that already existed. The outpouring of the love that had been eternity going on, eternally going on between Father, Son and Holy Spirit is what made God create. And then created, he created 
made beings in his image by which he's saying male and female by which he's saying people who can relate to one another people who can reflect the relationships of the trinity people who can love like i love that's what god created so this is this is the bit that blows my mind if for all eternity there had been three persons in relationship father son and holy spirit what happened when god made adam would it be fair to say that at that moment there were four persons in relationship father son spirit and Adam. Now, is that saying that his relationships are exactly the same as the relationships between them? No, but there's a lot of commonality. There's love, there's trust, there's the desire to glorify one another. There's an outward giving to the other. Adam was created to share in relationship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So suddenly, three persons in community becomes what? Four persons in community. What happened when Eve was created? five persons in community now and then there's the mandate fill the earth be fruitful and multiply take this community of three that's become four that's become five turn it into a community of six of ten of a million of billions of people all over the earth i want to see a community with father son and spirit at the center but that's modeled on the relationships within god where you're all loving each other as i love my son as he loves me this is what god's saying fill the earth with this kind of community so then we've got the fall now in genesis 3 verse 5 this is what satan said to eve god knows when you eat of it so eat of the fruit your eyes will be opened and you will be like god was he right why not bingo they were already like god because god is about love god's about community god's about relationship and their relationship was there their relationship was good there was trust there was love there was glory and then what happens when they go with the devil's temptation that relationship gets broken are they like god now no no they're not in relationship anymore they're cast out of relationship they're utterly unlike god who are they like now they're like the devil they're like satan he's made them like him because he's all about himself and his own glory god's about trusting and loving and building community we know the devil's a liar right we see it in everything that he says we have a question yeah ask it so you just you just think about you know when adam's created and it's all this community yeah yeah um well good yeah um angelic beings are never said to have been made in the image of god um i i think there's a, a thing on humanity created to relate to god that's different to how the angels were he existed yes drawn into the same kind of fellowship i don't think the bible ever indicates that the angels are so uh, yeah it, it depends how you want to formulate it i don't think he was in relationship with father son and spirit in the same way adam and eve and subsequent were. yeah absolutely yeah yeah um then we've got the old testament mission 
what's happening over and over again God calls Abraham and says right I want you to go and be a blessing to the nations you're going to have descendants as many as the the sand on the shore as many as the stars in the sky we've got this vision the same as in Eden fill the earth multiply let's see a community built of people in relationship with God same as Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles you're meant to go out into the world and see this thing built and then that's picked up in the New Testament, isn't it? The Great Commission, make disciples of all the nations. God's always been about filling the earth with a community of people in relationship like the Trinity. And then think about Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? He came to seek and save the lost. He came to leave the 99 and go after the one. Finding those who are cut off from relationship, cut off from community, cut off from knowing God and bring them in and see this built. Who did he reserve his sternest words for? Well, the, the Pharisees and particularly the Pharisees who were trying to push others out of community. Think about Matthew 23 verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're doing the opposite of what the Trinity's been doing. They've been loading on people so they can't be drawn into relationship. And Jesus said, no, no, we're not doing that. That's not the way of the kingdom. He's the one who get down and stoop and wash the feet of his disciples. That wasn't the first time that Jesus learned what it was to serve because he's always been lowering himself to glorify the Father and the Spirit. This is his eternal nature being expressed in human life and then when the disciples are making it all about power oh who gets the best seat in the kingdom you miss the point you don't understand it's not about power it's about giving of yourself it's about serving it's about taking the lowest place to lift others up it's not a new teaching from Jesus it's the nature of God the very heartbeat of who he is in the Trinity and then we think about what happened at the cross when you understand this as the nature of God and then you see those words from Jesus my God my God why have you forsaken me okay I mean can you feel the pain in those words this relationship that he's known for all eternity is love and blessing and glory and something new's introduced into it wrath is introduced in because he's bearing sin and God's eyes are too pure to look upon the sin and he's feeling the judgment of the father that eternal relationship something's different now that's the cross but because of that that curtain in the temple torn open to welcome the way back into this community the next one's a fun one christian life and i put a word deification anyone ever heard that word it's not a word we talk about a lot in the western church in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they, they talk about this a fair bit. I think it's just a fun thing to, to put out there. I guess if you kind of just think about the etymology of the word day, like God, vacation, being made, you'd probably think, hang on, being made God, I'm not sure about that. Perhaps there'd be a bit of bristling against the word. Let me show you a couple of quotes, see what you think of this. Athanasius in 4th century Egypt, but for he was made man so that we might be made God. Oh, that's a quote and a half, isn't it? Or Thomas Aquinas, 13th century Italy. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature, so that he made man might make men gods. 
That sounds absolutely bonkers when you think about God as a substance. When you think about God as this kind of thing that's there, are we just transmorphed into that? Mm -mm. That's not what they mean. What they mean is that God has always been community, family, relationship, Father, Son, Spirit. He became man, he took on our brokenness to bring us into that community, to bring us back into that relationship, that three that became four, that became five, that uh, the four became three. The way's open now for that to be a community of billions across the world. So in the New Jerusalem, we see a city that's, what, 1,300 miles long, wide and high? A cube. Now, the cube was a symbol of the Holy of Holies in the temple. But that 1,300 miles, so this is just off the charts. It's going to be big. It's going to expand. It's going to grow. The story started in a garden, but it ends in a city. Now, what's the thing about cities? There are people. Lots of people. Because God's building a community that he's drawing many into. So that's the Trinity. Your last page of the notes, I've just jotted down what I think a few of the implications of it are, and I've put space for you to think about others. I'm not going to go through these things in detail, um, but just to highlight what occurred to me. So much of our world is built on power. Who gets to be in charge? Who gets to tell others what to do? Understanding rightly the nature of God tells us it's not about that. It's never been about that. It's about relationships. It's about serving. It's about giving of ourselves. That means a couple of things. It means that the Christian celebrity culture is absolutely toxic. It means that if you've got a gift, the purpose of using the gift isn't to stand on a stage in front of other people, but to pour in and equip others to do things. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us, that apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, shepherds are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's pouring in, not lording over. It means when we worship, we get not just to bring a gift to God, but we get to participate in the very life of God. Our hearts are connecting into our Trinitarian relationship. It means the individualistic way our world does things. It's just not the, the way of God. It's not the way of the Bible. Also, when we build cliques in our church, it's not the way of God. The community of God is open. It's expansive. It's looking to draw others in. It means we want to be united, but we don't have to be the same. We don't have to look the same. We don't have to talk the same. We don't have to dress the same. We don't have to do things the same way. It means we should be looking to hear and embrace voices who are different to us. It means there's no place to be putting others down on the basis of race or class or gender or whatever it might be. It means your relationship with God is not just a cookie cutter, like you fill out this form, you go through these steps. God's about relating to you, and so he will. And so your story matters. I could have gone into these in detail. We're, we're out of time. I'm not going to do that. Um, is there... We've got one minute, right? I, I, I won't take questions, like, here. But I'll be here to, like, chat with questions just to one at a time. But I'm going to pray, and then let's wrap it up, okay? Lord, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you're a God of love. And we thank you that you've extended that love to us through sending your precious Son, through pouring out your Spirit into our hearts, and through drawing us in to the very life that you have. Lord, we're in awe. So Lord, we give all that we've thought and talked about to you, 
We ask that you would be glorified. We ask you truly be glorified like you've been for all eternity. And be glorified in our hearts as we live this out, as we serve one another, as we lay ourselves down, as we love you, as we lift Jesus up, as we welcome your spirit. Be with us and help us be your people. Amen. 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 So next time, I'll just get the date for you. I'll send it all round to you. But we've got Rebecca Whittlesey coming on November the 12th. Rebecca's part of the team at City Hope Church, Bermondsey, London. Great Bible teacher. She's going to be taking on the opening chapters of Acts. So this is getting the word about Jesus and what he's done out and the mission going forth. And then she's going to be talking about the Holy Spirit as well. So that's next time. I'll be around. Any questions? Feel free to ask. <laughs>